Let's pray together. God, thank you for your faithfulness, Lord, as we've seen through Jesus. Lord, that you're always with us, Lord, that you will not leave us or forsake us, regardless of the circumstances of our life, Lord, that you are faithful in it, God. We see that, Lord, through Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Lord, in the book of Daniel, where we see that in the person of Jesus, God, in the New Testament. We see how you walk with the early church through good, through bad, and through ugly. And, Lord, we, we see that today as you are with us as the bride of Christ. You're in this with us, Lord, because of what Christ has accomplished for us. We praise you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning. Man, I'm going to go right into the sermon this morning, Katie, because I'm fired up, all right? So y'all ready? Fired up. Y'all didn't, y'all missed an hour of sleep last night. Y'all weren't smart enough to go to bed early. I was, all right? So if you're sleepy today, I will call you out by name, teenagers especially, just because I love you, all right? Uh, Today we're going to be turning our attention to the book of Nehemiah. So if you have your Bible, if you'll open the book of Nehemiah, we are in a series, in the Ezra-Nehemiah series uh, called Life After Exile. We have trudged through the book of Ezra, and now we get to the third of three great leaders in this series. First we had Zerubbabel, then we had Ezra, and then we have Nehemiah. Now, Nehemiah was a short guy because he said he was Nehemiah. Right? No, I'm just kidding, that was terrible. Sorry, y'all, I'm sorry. It's just the dad jokes. I, I just, it is what it is. But anyway, he was a short guy, but he was a, a powerful leader for the Jewish people as he has a task that we're going to see in just a moment. Now, today, I really want to spend most of our time talking about that. The very thing that we just did a minute ago was pray. And because you're going to see how prayer plays such an important part of the act of restoration, which is the word we're talking about this year. What does it mean to be restored? That's act of restoration does not happen without prayer, intentional prayer, and daily committed prayer, right? And so you're going to see how Nehemiah models that this morning. And then you're going to see what happens when prayer and planning happen together, when God begins to give a burden and then begins to send us to a cause, okay? And so I hope, if anything, this morning, if you're sleepy, God will, God will awaken you with a, with a burden, all right? Because burdens aren't just, you know, things like, well, I feel bad about that, but you, you don't do anything about it. Burdens are meant to lift us towards a calling, okay? And you have a calling on your life. Every one of you have a calling on your life. I have a calling in my life. The question is, are we going to actually be obedient and answer that calling? Amen? Regardless of your age, regardless of your experiences, regardless of your past or your insufficiencies, God can take every one of us and use us for his greater purposes in that calling. So Nehemiah shows us that. So if you have your Bible, open your Bible, Nehemiah chapter 1. If you're watching from home, uh, grab a Bible, grab a piece of paper uh, online. You can take online notes. The rest of you guys have these nice little things called worship guides right here. And so you can use those. Now, I will say this before we jump in. Um, last week, we had the largest crowd we've had in almost three years on campus. I was thankful for that. And then this week, everybody got sick. So the ones in the room, y'all going to have to be a little bit more affirming, okay? Y'all going to have to be a little bit more loud, okay? And the ones at home, you can, on Facebook, you can put amen every now and then if you want to, all right? Or preach preacher, because then I preach better, all right? So if you'll help me out with that. Or I preach faster and I get you out of here faster. There, there you go. Yeah, okay, there we go. So if you have your Bible, Nehemiah chapter 1, uh, we'll get there now. So y'all with me? Say uh-huh. All right. 
Nehemiah chapter 1, I've, I love this book. I've preached this book several times, and I've often preached it solo of Ezra, which now I feel convicted about because you really can't separate the two because they're all in, in this linked together narrative, right? But so here we go, Nehemiah chapter 1. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah, now it happened in the month of Chislev, we don't have these months, in the 20th year, as I was in, this, is in Susa, the capital, that Hananiah, one of my brothers, one of his Jewish brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. So again, let's put this back into a biblical context here. So you've had a couple of different waves of Jews now coming back from Babylon and Persia. You get the new capital of Persia here, mentioned by name here, and they're, they're starting to go back. And the first group went to build the temple. Y'all with me? Say uh-huh, right? And they built the temple, and they had some slow progress and fast progress. August, ultimately, the temple was rebuilt about 516, 517 B.C. And then you had Ezra. And Ezra, his passion, he's a preacher. And he loves the Word of God. He loves the Mosaic Law and realizes that the long-term success of the people is not in the buildings you build, but what you really store up in your heart and your obedience to the law of God, His Word, right? And so he, he, he recruits people to go back and really to reinstitute the Mosaic Law in Jerusalem, okay? And so you have a builder, and then you have a contractor, and then you have a cupbearer turned contractor slash governor by the end of the narrative, okay? And so he hears from back home from the first two. Nehemiah hears from the reports of what's already happened, that there is still turmoil in Jerusalem. Things aren't back to normal yet, right? <laughs> Let's just put that in our context. Of the last two years, again, we don't have to talk about COVID, but I'm hearing less about COVID today, and it feels like we're starting to get back to normal, amen, right? But there's still little things here and there that still like remind us, you know what, we're still not back to normal yet. And I don't know if we'll ever be back to normal, right? But I long for those days. And I'm sure Nehemiah longed for those days again. Although he wasn't born in Jerusalem, his family's from Jerusalem, he still wants his people, his family nation to succeed. And so he hears this report, verse 2. And they said to me, here's the report. The remnant there in the province who has survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down. We, we talk a little bit about the word brokenness. Our brokenness is a cause from our sin today. All of us can say we're broken in some form or fashion, right? Amen, right? All of us have issues. All of us have our stuff. All of that is a direct or indirect result of sin. But here we have a physical wall that's broken down, but it's symbolic of something much greater, Right? The walls of an ancient city were there for protection first and foremost, but it was also there for identity and to give them a sense of security in the land. The land was so incredibly important for the, the Jewish people. The land is synonymous with the promised land, right? This is a picture of the promises of God fulfilled through his people. And so here this, this wall is much more than just a brick wall. It's your house. It's a picture of God's promises and also now people's unfaithfulness in the midst of God's promises. So they're despised, it's broken down. It says the gates are destroyed by fire. Verse 4, Nehemiah says, As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and I wept and I mourned for days. Now remember last week we talked about repentance. Y'all with me? Repentance. And Ezra modeled repentance. And we're going to see a little bit of a picture of the same kind of thing. And you're going to see this a little bit more familiar now in the narrative. That repentance is kind of highlighted here. First, there's a mourning and a grief. But then there's, there's confession of sin. That's the same kind of pattern that we see in Nehemiah chapter 1. 
He says he mourned for days, and he continued fasting. And here is the first mentioning. What did he do? Instead of panicking, instead of devising his own plans and saying, oh, no, the, the sky is falling. No, no, Nehemiah did something even better. He prayed. Here it is. For the first time, he said, I prayed for the God of heaven. Now, let's look at these verse number one in your worship guide, if you'll fill this in for me. Number one, God-given burdens demand man-obedient actions. So what happened in this moment, this report? It wasn't just a, a bad news that, that Nehemiah could just shake off and go on his own way. It wasn't just a small fry kind of thing. It was something that pierced his heart and soul to the point that he had to do something about it. You know, God gives us uh, holy heartburns, burdens in our life when we hear of injustice or we hear of things that aren't right, and it should lead us to do something about it. It's not just somebody else's job to fix the problem. We are either part of the problem, church, or we're part of the solution, right? We, we want to we delegate that off to somebody who's maybe got more time, or maybe they got more skill set, or maybe, maybe they can do this or that. But, but if when God gives you a burden, he expects you to do something with that burden. Amen? It's called a calling in our life. Now, one of the commentaries I've used a lot in this series, in fact, Miss Joy Boyd asked me, he said, are you talking about James Hamilton, the, the old like uh, politician that was back in the day, ran for president? Not the same James Hamilton, but they, that comp she, she really asked me that question. Don't tell her I said that, okay? And she's watching, I'm sorry, Joy. Anyway, James Hamilton, the author of the commentary, he's a professor at Southern Seminary, he says this, and this is, man, if it was football season, I couldn't use this quote, okay? So if you're a football fan, Hold tight. If you care more about how your favorite college football team does on Saturday than you do, not, and, and then you do about how the gospel is advancing, that's probably because you identify more shaped by the time you spent watching and talking football than the time you spent studying the Bible. Which do you know better, the roster, the stats, the prospects of your team, or the content of the scriptures? Who do you feel more passionate about, the players on your favorite team or the pastors and the missionaries and co-laborers in the gospel? Which would grieve you more, seeing your favorite team lose the national championship or hearing that Christians are being persecuted in a faraway place? That, and I read that this week and I thought, whoa. We, we are bothered by a lot of different things that do not matter. But there are things that should bother us around the gospel. Amen? It should bother us in this world where there's things that are wrong, morally wrong, biblically wrong. And we look in the evil in the world and say, people need the hope of Jesus Christ. That should bother us. We should care more about that than the score last night or who wins the tournament or, or, or any of our favorite hobbies, right? It's funny how we get passionate about things that really don't matter. You with me? And then we're just completely unemotional about the gospel. <laughs> I would say the more we grasp the gospel, listen carefully, the more emotional about the gospel we should be. So again, the more we grasp the gospel, the more emotional or, 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 or bought in holy burdens we should have in this world because the gospel moves us and becomes the priority in our life. Now wake up with me, church. Y'all still with me, huh? 
See, this is what Jesus modeled. Jesus, when he, Matthew chapter, in chapter 9, I love this, this text. He had compassion for them when he, when he saw the crowds because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, so the burden is, he has this compassion and a burden then. And he said, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, this is what you do. We pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers. So a burden that Jesus has and his compassion now leads to an action, first and foremost prayer, but entirely his ministry, right? See, Jesus modeled what a compassion and a burden look like. D.L. Moody, talking about prayer, what did he do? He prayed here, Nehemiah prays. D.L. Moody says, every great movement of God can be traced to a kneeling figure. And so what did Nehemiah do? He prayed. It's the first thing he did. Now, I found that prayer is often the last thing we do, right? Like, we're good about seeing the problem, but we're not good about talking to God about the problem. We try to fix it every which way we can fix it before we finally acknowledge the one who has complete control and can fix it. Who actually knows the problem before we know there's a problem, right? Y'all with me, right? We, we're not good prayers. Is that a word, prayers, right? Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 5. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God. And listen, it's almost like, like Nehemiah's reminding God of his character. And God's like, I know, right? He said, God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins. Here's this confession, like confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we, not just they, Nehemiah says, Nehemiah is, 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 is distant from, from Jerusalem. He's still in Babylon, but now he's, he's accompanies his entire self. He wasn't even part of the, the, the problem, so to speak. That was his fathers and his forefathers. But he says, no, 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 I'm part of that problem too because I'm a sinner as well. So, so we have sinned against you. And even I and my father's house have sinned. And we, verse 7, we have acted very corruptly against you. have not kept the commandments, the statutes, the rules that you've commanded your servant Moses. And he's going to remind, reminding God of what God has already said. That seems kind of foolish, doesn't it? It's actually a pretty good thing sometimes. Not that God forgets, but it's important for us to remember. You with me? Have you ever prayed scripture before? It's really a powerful practice. Take, take some psalms and pray some psalms. Again, not reminding God of what God has said. God knows what he has said, but it's reminding you, and you're putting your heart together with his heart and his word. So remember what you told your servant. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the people. But, but, but listen, but God, you remember what you said? But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them Though you're outcast from the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. He's reminding God, you might want to write this down, of what God has already said in Deuteronomy chapter 4 and Leviticus chapter 26. God has already said this, made these conditions. God just want to remind you of what you've already said. Now, how can Nehemiah remind God? You know, you know how he can remind God? Because he knows what God has said. He knows what God has spoken. He knows God's word. Amen? They are, verse, verse 10. And they are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power, by your strong hand. Number two. Knowledge of God's word leads to a knowledge of God's will. You know, you know how Nehemiah has a holy burden? Because he sees life. He sees his current situation Divorced from 
God's great plan. You with me? What God ultimately wants. What he has explicitly said his hopes are for his people. And that divide has caused him a great deal of heartburn and heartache. Right? He's like, I have a burden because things aren't as they should be. Y'all with me today in the world? Y'all look at the world and you think, things aren't the way they should be. We don't, we're not in Kansas anymore. Like, this is, not the, this is not the America I grew up in. I'm not trying to be political. That's just not the world I grew up in, right? And so I have great concerns about that. That's, that's Nehemiah. He said, things aren't the way they should be. And he, and he knows how they should be because God's already said how it should be. Amen. So you can't know God's will unless you know God's word. The same D.L. Moody said, I never saw a fruit-bearing Christian who was not a student of the Bible. Okay, we, we can't walk in obedience to, those, to the commands of God based on those burdens unless we know what the commands of God are. Verse 11, Nehemiah chapter 1. I'm going I'm to go fast. Now hang in there with me. I'm not reading all of chapter 1 and 2, by the way. So if you all saw Nehemiah 1 and 2, you're thinking... Another 45-minute sermon. Here we go. Oh, Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer, verse 11, the prayer of your servant. Notice how many, and you may circle this in your Bible, the word prayer here. And to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name. Give success to your servant today. And grant him mercy in the sight of this man. This man you're about to be introduced to because he's the cupbearer. So now I was the cupbearer. The king. And so what did Nehemiah do? He prayed. Now we get a, a little bit of a, a, a monthly references here based upon their calendar. It's different than our calendar. So when you turn over to chapter 2 in just a minute, you're going to realize what Nehemiah had been doing is praying not for a day or two, not for a week or two, but for four months. For four months, Nehemiah has been petitioning God about the burden that he has for Jerusalem. Four months. Four months of diligently seeking God. God, do something. And while he's praying, God is giving him a plan, all right? How, how different do we act sometimes? Like when we have a burden, like we pray about it for a day or two. We'll even give lip service. Somebody shares a prayer request. Like, well, I'll pray about that. And you might pray about it once, might, right? And then you forget about it. Now, we're all guilty of that. Y'all with me say, I know it's an embarrassment, but I've done it, right? We've all done it. Not Nehemiah here. Nehemiah, he, he bathes this thing in prayer. Like he, he takes the long scenic route of prayer. A lot of us, like we're going to pray about something for a day or two, and then we're going to do it, and we're just praying God blesses it. Amen? That's not Nehemiah. He don't run into the fire. He waits for the God who's in the fire with him to show him a plan. Amen? He waits patiently upon the Lord, and prayer becomes his choice weapon. Number three, we are constantly powerless because we are consistently prayerless. We wonder why today as Christians we are impotent. We are ineffective. Because we spend little to no time with the Lord. We, we, we pay, preacher, you're being mean. I'm not being mean. I'm just, just reflecting really our culture, our, our Christian culture. We pray before we eat. We might pray at bed, bedtime. But we don't have, remember the movie War Room? We don't have a war room. We don't have time that we're setting aside, spending time with the Lord in, in intentional prayer, asking of God, but also listening of God. Oh, well, I'm too busy, preacher. You are never too busy to pray. Regardless of what is on your schedule today, you 
Make time for what is most important to you. If spending time with your Heavenly Father is most important to you, you'll make time for that. We are never too busy to pray. No wonder we're so ineffective. Think about our, our church. Like, if anything, as Scripture tells us, if anything God's house should be known for, it should be a house of prayer. But do we pray enough? And i got to tell you, we don't pray enough. We don't have enough time of prayer in corporate worship, in our small groups. We, we share our prayer concerns. We call it prayer concerns. And we talk about it for 10 minutes, and we say a 20-second prayer. Preacher, that's me. No, I'm not being me. I'm, that's, I'm, that's real. This is where we're at. We are a prayerless society. And we wonder, God, where are you? God hasn't changed. He hasn't moved. Listen, he hasn't hung up the phone conversation. We have. We wonder where we're at. All right, Tori. says, prayer is the key that unlocks all the storehouses of God's infinite grace and power. The very thing that should be our greatest tool and weapon in this life, we leave at home. And we don't pray. But Nehemiah did. My, oh, my, oh, Nehemiah. He did. Chapter 2, verse 1. Y'all still with me? Y'all lost that hour of sleep last night. We need to get up and do some jumping jacks. A little baseball team. I'd make them run poles right now. I'd make them run side to side just to wake them up. But I won't make you guys do that in the church sanctuary, right? Because you can't run the church, right? Verse 1, chapter 2. In the month of Nisan, not a car, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, while he was drinking and having a good time, I took up the wine and gave it to the king, Nehemiah said. Now, I had not been sad in his presence, because to be sad in the king's presence makes the king very, very nervous, right? This is the days of when mutiny was on the threshold of the floor all the time. Somebody else wanted to be king, and so there's the cupbearer. He was really the, the trusted uh, protector of the king in case somebody tried to poison the wine. So at any point in time, Daniel could have dumped over, Nehemiah could have dumped over. There's a lot of other cupbearers we see in the Bible, but nonetheless... Here we are. The king said to me, why is your face sad? Why are you so sad, seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but the sadness of the heart. Obviously, the king knew Nehemiah well enough to see his countenance saying, something's not right today. Maybe in the back of his mind, he begins to get paranoid. Maybe somebody's paid him off. Maybe, maybe he's in conspiracy with somebody because somebody wants my throne. And so somebody's given him in the cup poison. Why are you so sad, Nehemiah? Something is wrong. This is the opportunity that God had been preparing Nehemiah for for four months. For four months. Uh, who knows, for the last four months, Nehemiah had, may have been sad in, his, in the king's face, but the king hadn't recognized him. But, but on this appointed day, the king recognized something is wrong with Nehemiah. What is wrong, Nehemiah? And Nehemiah could have done what well, we're, I'm fine. You know, don't we do that sometimes? When we're sad or we have a burden, we walk around like things are really bad. And at church, we, we put on our church face. How are you? Oh, I'm fine. You know that movie, uh, Italian Job? It's freaked out, it's insecure, neurotic, and emotional, right? That's really what we are. We're not fine. Like we got all kind of junk going on. Some of y'all, sometimes I, emotional basket case. Let's just call it what it is, right? I'm fine. No, Nehemiah didn't say I'm fine. Because at some point, Prayer became an action. Y'all with me, right? Please don't be mad at me for using this, this analogy. I've already showed you my, my country music love, right? Garth Brooks, because I'm shameless, right? 
you may have heard of the great theologian Toby Keith, okay? <laughs> he said we need a, lot, a little less talk and a lot more action, right? Not endorsing the song, okay? So sometimes at point, the, the, the talk has got to become an, an action, an obedient, and here it is. This is the moment, and you know what he does? He first, instead of giving the action, here again, Nehemiah modeling prayer. Then he bowed his head. He was very afraid, and he bowed his head and began to pray. Before we get there, number four, the worship guides. Number four, fill them in. God has not called believers to comfort and safety. I've, I've said this a lot lately because it still rings true. But to take up the cross daily and follow him. This is a dangerous moment for Nehemiah. Because if he shares his burden and the king's not with the burden, he may lose his position or he may lose his life. He's got to be very careful about what he says and how he says it. But that did not keep Nehemiah away from obedience. That did not keep Nehemiah from back from sitting down and just doing nothing. No, instead, he stepped up and realizing this call of God may not be safe. And it may not be easy. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 16, verse 24, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Being a Christian today may not be easy, but that's okay. It doesn't need to be easy. One of the greatest lies in modern Christianity is that God wants us comfortable. God doesn't want you comfortable. He wants you obedient. The greatest lies of Christianity today is, is make it easy, more palatable. God says, go deeper. Trust me more. Grow in your faith. If you follow Jesus, God's going to give you everything you want. No, if you follow Jesus, God's going to lead you into everything he wants for you. You see the difference? Nehemiah, thank God, didn't back away. Verse 5. So Nehemiah said to the king, let the king live forever. This is not just, I think, verbal assent to the king. He wants to ensure the king, I have nothing against you. This has nothing to do with any threat on your life. Why should not my face be sad? Here's the burden. When the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire. Why should I not be sad that my homeland is still in disarray? Even after uh, Zerubbabel and even after Ezra, it's still not like it should be. And I'm still in reports that, that we're not restored yet. Of course I'm going to have a burden about that. And the king asked and said, what are you requesting? Like, there's got to be a request here someplace because it's all you do. It's, if you're a king, like, this is all you get is questions, right? Can I do this? Can I do that? It's like being a parent. Y'all with me, right? You hear questions all day long. Sometimes it's like being a pastor, I'll be honest with you. You make decisions all day long. During COVID, I've joked around about this. Some, you know, there's been, there's been decisions that pastors have had to make that we did not want to make alone. I'm just going to tell you, we just had to make them in the spot, okay? Good, bad, ugly. Some people liked them. Some people hated them. But it's just what, is, what, is, what it is, okay? Right? I, I, I've been guilty the last couple of years of coming home, and, and Kim would ask me a simple question, like, what do you want for dinner? And my answer is, I don't want to decide. I've been answering questions all day long. I just don't want to answer a question, right? And then y'all have met Bethany and Jonathan, and then there's questions, right? You know? This is, this is life. But for, for the king, this is... Life, what do you want? What do, what, what do you want, Nehemiah? And he did, he did what Nehemiah should have done. In that moment, he didn't stop praying. He continued prayer. Notice what it said. So I, in that moment, I think he bowed his head 
visually in front of the king, and I prayed to the God of heaven. Number five, this is a really important one. The mission, the burden, the call of God on our life is initiated in prayer, it is sustained in prayer, and it is achieved in prayer. Prayer is not just the preface of the call. Prayer is the call. Y'all with me? It's not just something we do on the front side until God gives us a stamp of approval. Now I'll go do it. No, no, it is initiated in, but it's also sustained in prayer, and it has succeeded and achieved in prayer. <laughs> I think in the four months that Nehemiah has been praying, God has given him a game plan. But he did not take God out of the equation in the game plan. How guilty are we that? God gives us a call on our life. He gives us a task, a mission. And God burns your heart about it, and you go out and do it. And next thing you know, it's just your call and your mission. No, no, no. It's God's call, his mission on your life to use you. Don't forget God in the equation. Because if you ever make it your mission and your call, it will fail. Right? How, how, how prideful we can be when it comes to that. The mission, mission is initiated in prayer, sustained in prayer, and achieved in prayer. So let's talk about prayer for just a minute. I'm going to remind you of some verses. You can write them down quickly. Quickly. Do not be anxious about anything, Paul says. But in everything, in Philippians chapter 4, he says, By prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. James said, The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. It's fervent prayer. It's great power as it is working. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 18 says, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. I get confused about that one in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 17, which says something very similar. It says pray without ceasing. Because when I think about praying at all times in the Spirit, I'm like, even when I'm driving, some of y'all drive like you got your eyes closed, right? But is, is that, is, what's that mean? To pray at all times, it means to constantly be in an attitude and posture of prayer. You know, you can pray with your eyes open. You know that, right? So you're driving down the road, like, and you, you pull up next to me in my truck, and you see me talking to myself. I ain't talking to myself. I'm talking to God. Mind your own business. Okay? Amen? Constantly praying at all times. Pray without ceasing. Leonard Ravenhill, a great evangelist, said this. Prayer is not a preparation for the battle. It is the battle. He echoed, actually, Oswald Chambers, who said this way. He said, prayer does not fit us for the greater work. Prayer is the greater work. Prayer is the foundation of everything we do. And when we take prayer out of it, the foundation erodes and breaks. You with me? No, no wonder about, there's, there's ministries in, the church, in our church and every church that is eroded and broken. Why? Because we stop praying about it. One of the most annoying questions my mother asked me as a child was, have you prayed about it? Have you prayed about it? Have you prayed about it? And the point, the point that even, even now as a grown man reminds me that there's not a thing in my life that I shouldn't pray about. There's not a thing in my life that I shouldn't take before the throne. Now, sometimes that's an affirming thing. Like, God says clearly in his word, this is what you should do, I'm going to do that. But it's just an, off, an affirmation. God, you said to do this, I just want you to know, I'm going to walk in obedience to this. Pray about it. There's nothing in our life that we shouldn't pray about. And if we ever find a part of our life that we don't want to pray about, shouldn't that, didn't that tell us something? Doesn't that affirm that we shouldn't, shouldn't be going there? Because if you don't want to tell daddy about it, huh, good chance daddy's not pleased. Amen? 
Verse 5. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, if your servant has found favor in your sight. Guys, by the way, it's just 1102 up here. So there you go. Yes. If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, you send me to Judah, the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen's sitting right there, how long will you be gone? When will you return? You think he just shot from the hip? No, he'd been planning for four months. So it pleased the king to send me when I'd given him a time. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, hey, I'm going to go a little further with this. Here's the plan. I've been praying about four months. Seen the crew to prayer. Let letters be given to me to the governors of the province beyond the river. They may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the walls of the city and for the house that I, sh- I shall occupy. Like this is the same, like, same scenario that we found back in Zerubbabel. And all of a sudden the king again is going to furnish all the resources and the protection to go back and rebuild that which is broken down. I just want to, I can't compare Artaxerxes and God. But our king can do the same thing. The king of kings and lord of lords has full provision for us to accomplish whatever he calls us to. Well, I can't do that because I don't have the time. Well, God will make you have the time. I can't do that because I don't have the resources. Well, God, thankfully, God doesn't work on your checkbook. God works on his great riches, right? And so, yes, he can accomplish that through his provision as well. This is the, the number one principle of stewardship. Listen to me carefully. Talking about stewardship, we, just, we had a moment, but we didn't do it today. But listen carefully. Number one principle of stewardship. Everything I own is actually God's. So I don't own it. Everything that's in my lap is his. And I'm just a point guard for it. A distributor of it. Right here. God begins to provide. And the king, verse, here it is. The king granted me what I asked why? Because the good hand of my God was upon me. Philippians chapter 4, verse 19. My God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. That does not mean you're going to be healthy, wealthy, and wise. It means that God's going to provide what you need to accomplish his purposes for his glory. And I said to them, verse 17, we're going to jump down. He's surveyed the walls now. He's back in Jerusalem. He realizes the strut. And he, by the way, he has done it very secretly, if you go between the, between the lines there. Now he gathers the Jews. We're going to be almost done here. He, get, he gathers the Jews there in Jerusalem. You see the trouble we are in? How Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burns, burned. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem. You know why every preacher loves this text? Because it's an invitation. There's an opportunity to put it right in our lap. Join me, church. Come, let us rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. Let's rebuild that which has been broken down. To bring restoration to, to homes that have been broken. To, to, to Christians who have been missing in action from church. To, to situations where people are so overwhelmed by life that they need a friend. So come, let us rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. That we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God, the faithfulness of my God that had been upon me for good. And also the words the king had spoken to me. And then they said, and this is the dream of a pastor, that the whole church said, first of all, for the church to be on the same page, amen. That's a miracle, amen, right? Can I get a witness? (laughs) 
they all said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. Number six, salvation is not predicated in works, but it is proven in works. It's not predicated in works. It's not not initiated in works. Your works does nothing for your salvation. Nothing. God has already accomplished that. Read Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. By grace, through the vehicle of faith. Amen? You didn't do it. God did. But if God has saved you, church, he's also saved you to a task. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. For we are his workmanship, creating Christ Jesus. Do good works, which God prepared beforehand that he called you to with burden and compassion that you may walk in them. Proven in works. Galatians 6, Paul says, And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we don't give up. Colossians chapter 3, Paul says, Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord, not for men. He says, later on, you are serving the Lord Christ. Proverbs chapter 14, verse 23, in all toil or all work, there is profit, but mere talk tends only to poverty. We need a little less talk and a lot more action, Toby Keith says. Colossians 1.10, bearing fruit in every good work. So, so, so to be a Christian and so I have a relationship with Jesus Christ. Christ, I've been saved by grace through the vehicle of faith. But to have no fruit of that change, it's inconceivable. Because God saved you not just from sin and death and hell, but from uselessness to the kingdom. And he now has, by his grace, invited you in to be a worker for the kingdom. To be doers of the word, not hearers only. As Spurgeon said, good works are not the root of faith, but they are its fruit. So which came first, the chicken or the egg? Grace came first, but then came fruit. And if you can't find fruit, you got the wrong egg. Amen? So we, we do. Now we get a little trouble here, and we'll find, pick up more on the, the, the three Three big troublemakers of Nehemiah, called three stooges of Nehemiah, Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem. They begin to say, hey, we want to, we want to know what's going on. Verse 19, what is this thing that you're doing? Are you rebelling against the king? And I, I replied, no, the God of, of heaven will make us prosper. And we, our servants, will arise and build. But you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. We'll stop right there. But I'm going to give you one more statement. This is kind of a summary statement of how do we marriage Mary, prayer and fruit. Prayer and works. Here it is, number seven. Prayer is not an excuse for laziness. And work is not an excuse for prayerlessness. If you, if you forget everything else I said, you're dozing off like I need an hour of sleep, write this one down. Prayer, oh, I'm so heavenly minded, I'm no earthly good. That should never be spoken of us as Christians. Prayer is not an excuse for laziness, and work is not an excuse for prayerlessness. As Augustine would say, early church father, pray as though everything depends on God. Work as though everything depends on you. 
So let me ask you this, and I'm going to wrap this thing up, land the plane. What are you burdened about? And have you brought, you brought the burden, your burden to God? Have you prayed about it? And what has God said about it? And how is God equipping you to do something about it? Because the reality is this. In a room this size, for all of us who have born again or have a relationship with Christ through, through, through Jesus, God has given you spiritual gifts, he's given you talents, and he's given you the hunger to serve him, hopefully. The question is, where are you serving him? Where are you working? Not for your glory, but for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Where are you working? Has your burden led to prayer? Has your prayer led to planning? Has your planning led to obedience? And if not, where's the breakdown? Where are you falling short? Would you pray with me? Lord God, give us holy burdens. Not to pass the burden off on somebody else, to another church leader, to the pastor, but give us a holy burden. And the Lord in that burden lead us to prayer. I mean, like real prayer, like fervent prayer. In that prayer, Lord, give us your will, your planning, Lord, as we're looking in the scriptures and we're spending time with you. Give us a plan for the call of God in our life. And then, Lord, in your time, Lord, use us for your glory as your workmanship created in this relationship with Christ Jesus. Lord, if there's anyone here that doesn't have a relationship with Jesus, Lord, that is the first call. That is the call of repentance, the call of faith to believe in Jesus, to place the full weight of their faith in Jesus Christ, their Lord and Savior. So, Lord, today, let the first prayer be the sinner's prayer. Lord, a confession, repentance, and faith today. But I pray for salvation in this room for somebody. But, Lord, for, for believers, Lord, lead us, Lord, the fruit. Lord, help us to show our faith. As James chapter 2 talks about, show our faith. Otherwise, it's just dead. So it would help us to have a mind to work. Lord, during this commitment time, let, let our church in our hearts recommit ourselves to the work of the gospel. Lord, that we have a mind to work. Let's rise up and build. God would reaffirm that inside of us as a church.